Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Wow. Paul Manafort, Brett Kavanaugh, all kinds of weird stuff in the news. It is amazing. Paul Manafort has apparently flipped on Trump. Paul Manafort certainly knew where the dirt was. Paul Manafort was running the campaign at the time the Republican National Committee decided to change their platform on Russia. Paul Manafort used to work in the Ukraine. Paul Manafort, I think, is going to be very problematic for Trump. He was looking at the rest of his life in prison. He is surrendering $46 million in cash and goodies, which means that the Mueller investigation just paid for itself, right? Our government has taken more from Paul Manafort than the Mueller investigation presumably has cost. We don't have the actual numbers, but it's probably, in, you know, well under this neighborhood. He's giving up real estate in Brooklyn, real estate in New York City, real estate in Walter Mill, New York, bank accounts held by Federal Savings Bank, Capital One, another Federal Savings Bank, and Northwest Mutual Life Insurance Policy, all funds held by Charles Schwab, a property in Arlington, Virginia, all of this stuff. And Mueller is... He's now got his cooperation. This wasn't the big speculation up to this point was, will Manafort cop to a plea deal? You know, yes, I'll plead guilty to these things to save you the trouble of prosecution if you give me a lighter sentence. Well, that's not what he did. He said, I'll not only plead guilty to these things, but I'll spill the beans on Trump. And now you've got some state attorneys general who are looking at this going, hmm, because, you know, if he's pleading guilty to federal tax fraud, and he had residences in Virginia and New York. Odds are one of those states was the domicile, you know, his residence, his legal residence for tax purposes. And that state can then go after him for concealing his taxes. And that's something that the president cannot pardon. So number one, we've got Manafort. Number two, Brett Kavanaugh news. The letter that was delivered to Dianne Feinstein that made the news turns out that it is an allegation by a young woman. This is when uh, Brett Kavanaugh was going to Georgetown Prep School in Bethesda. And this woman attended a nearby high school. And reading from Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer, Jane Mayer, who wrote the absolutely brilliant book, Dark Money, and Ronan Farrow, of course, who has busted open the entire Me Too thing. I mean, he just made all this happen. He's the guy who took down Harvey Weinstein and uh, over the objections, apparently, of NBC. 
now they're both at the New Yorker, newyorker.com. And so reading from this piece by Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer, when Kavanaugh was a high school student at Georgetown Preparatory School in Maryland, the woman attended a nearby high school. In the letter, this is the letter that she gave to her member of Congress, Anna Eshoo, who then gave it to Dianne Feinstein, who then gave it to the FBI. In this letter, the woman alleged that during an encounter at a party, Brett Kavanaugh held her down and he attempted to force himself on her. She claimed in the letter that Kavanaugh and a classmate of his, both of whom had been drinking, turned up the music that was playing in the room to conceal the sound of her protests and that Kavanaugh himself covered her mouth with his hand. She was finally able to free herself and got out without being raped, but has been shaken up ever since. Kavanaugh issued a statement saying, I categorically and unequivocally deny this allegation. I did not do this in high school or at any time. So we've got a Clarence Thomas situation here. And of course, we learned after the fact that Clarence Thomas, in fact, had been hitting on people who worked for him, on women who worked for him. And I think Anita Hill has been largely vindicated that Clarence Thomas was and probably still is some kind of a sexual predator. And now Brett Kavanaugh is on notice for this. By the way, did you notice that Brett Kavanaugh actually came right out and said that he would want to overturn Roe v. Wade? You know, most people completely miss this, and I think the media completely missed this. I, didn't, I haven't seen this on any television anywhere. Ian Milheiser writing about this over at thinkprogress.org. And just to give you a little background here, in 1997, there was a Supreme Court decision called Washington v. Glucksburg. And in this decision, the question was, if the federal government is going to grant rights to somebody or acknowledge rights to somebody, say the right to a gay marriage, the right to get married, it's not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. So it's not an enumerated right, right? It's not one of that list of things in Article 1, Section 8. So it's called an unenumerated right. And so if you're going to decide what actually should be a right protected by the government, in this decision, Glucksburg what the Supreme Court justices concluded was that an appropriate unenumerated right is one which is, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. So if you can find that something has been a right for hundreds of years, for example, the right to get married, not necessarily gay married, but married, then you can say that's an unenumerated right, right? And we're not going to dispute that. Or the right to drive your car, or the right to walk on public streets, or, you know, things that are not in the Constitution. Prior to 1973, we do not have a long tradition in this country of abortion being legal. In fact, we have a long tradition of, the, of abortion being illegal. So if you were going to apply the Glucksburg test to Roe v. Wade and say, you know, is there a long tradition of a right to abortion in the United States? The answer would have to be no. And sure enough, that's what Kavanaugh said when he was being questioned by Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz said, you know, let's talk about the foundations of the unenumerated rights doctrine. And Kavanaugh said, all roads lead to the Glucksburg test as the test that the Supreme Court has settled on as the proper test to determine whether or not a right is actually a right. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you go back to his 2017 speech to the American Enterprise Institute, Brett Kavanaugh said, and I quote, even a first-year law student could tell you that the Glucksburg's approach to unenumerated rights was not consistent with the approach of abortion cases such as Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood be Casey. In other words, he came right out and said, we're going to apply this test of was this right, quote, traditionally given to us or recognized by our government? 
And if we can't find that it traditionally was, then it's not an appropriate right. He is aggressively going to shoot down the right to abortion in this country. By the way, Louise and I last night, we were going to watch uh, Republican Doyle. We turned on Netflix and right up at the top, right at the, you know, the very was a documentary on abortion. And I was like, whoa, what's this? A Netflix original. So we watched it. It was an hour and a half long. And it, you could have picked my jaw up off the floor. It was one of the most brilliant pieces of documentary filmmaking I have ever seen. And I strongly recommend it. They have the anti-abortion folks are well represented and they make their points very clearly. And, and of course, the pro-abortion, the right of women to control their own bodies and choose what's going on, that was well represented as well. So just a heads up, check that thing out. It's really worth checking out. So anyhow, enough of my rants for the morning or afternoon, as it may be, wherever you may happen to be, or evening. Enough of that. We're going to get to your phone calls here. It's Talk Media for the rest of us, the Tom Hartman Program, your media support group for We the People. How bad do you think this is going to harm Trump? Or do you think it won't at all, what Manafort is doing? This is the Tom Hartman Program. I mean, we may be on the verge of finding out just how much of a crook or even a traitor the guy sitting in the White House is right now. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our podcasts are supported by advertising, and I'm really pleased that Quip is advertising with our program because they've got an amazing product. When was the last time you replaced your toothbrush? Do you always brush twice a day for a full two minutes? You know, these are important habits that have a huge impact on your health. And I grew up with so many misunderstandings about brushing my teeth that I, you know, that frankly, I didn't learn about until I got my Quip electric toothbrush. And they're the ones who told me, you only need a little tiny dot of toothpaste, for example. And you don't need to scrub the crap out of your mouth. You just two minutes gently with a toothbrush twice a day. You don't need to do it three times a day. You don't need to get hysterical about it. My OCD had kicked in back when I was a teenager around brushing my teeth. And I think I frankly damaged my gums going nuts with all this electric toothbrushes and stuff. Quip is a really great new electric toothbrush that's gentle and really works. It fixes those problems. It does this with a lightweight and sleek design, simple time vibrations, and guiding pulses to give you a perfect two-minute clean. Bulkier electric brushes have awkward charging stands, modes you don't need. They cost five times as much. And here's the amazing thing. Quip starts at just $25. And you can get brush head refills automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for only five bucks. And shipping is free. Quip has been featured in GQ, Oprah's O-List, and Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of the year. I agree. Go to getquip.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, right now and get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Tom. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash T-H-O-M. And when you do, you're also supporting our program and our podcast. Thank you. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Meat Racket, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Business by Christopher Leonard. Uh, this is from the prologue. Uh, it's titled The Hidden King. Nobody ever visits the stranded little community of Waldron, Arkansas. But even if they did, a tourist would never see the place for what it really is. Most outsiders would be fooled into thinking it was an actual small town. On any given morning, the residents awaken and begin their routine along Main Street. Old men park their pickup trucks by the curb in front of the Rock Cafe, which opens early for breakfast. As the cafe's booths and tables fill up, a congregation of old-timers and cowboy hats gathers in a loose ring of aluminum chairs out front, smoking and talking and stubbing out their cigarette butts in a bucket full of sand. 
Later in the morning, Chambers Bank in the south end of town opens up, and the tellers cheerfully greet customers by name. On Thursday at noon, the livestock auction opens in a cavernous barn on the north side of town, drawing crowds of ranchers who haul steel trailers behind their trucks, with cows staring out between the horizontal slats. In the late afternoon, teenagers park their cars by the gazebo south of the auction barn, proudly displaying their Mustangs and Broncos like big game trophies. These events have a rhythm of their own, the clockwork functioning of a small town economy. But it's all just window dressing. All of it would cease to exist in a moment and have no impact whatsoever on the true Waldron or its true economic reason for being. The real tempo of the town's economic pulse is measured by the coming and going of semi-trucks, the roll down Main Street at periodic intervals, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In the middle of the night, tanker trucks full of animal feed rumble past the empty stores and out onto country roads that lead into the hilly terrain that surrounds town. At dawn, other trucks trundle in from the hills, heaped high with battered metal crates full of chickens that exude clouds of white feathers along the highway. The tempo can be measured in the regular arrival of train cars full of grain and oil seeds that dump their loads at a feed mill that clanks and hums and churns all night. And in the parade of refrigerated trucks that pull up to a slaughterhouse near the feed mill and get loaded with pallets of frozen meat. This is the real functioning of Waldron, Arkansas, and its true reason for being. This is the heartbeat of Tyson Foods. The Tyson plant on the north end of Waldron is the only thing that keeps the town on the map. Appropriately, many residents simply refer to it as the complex. That's because the Tyson plant isn't just a factory. It's more like an entire small-town economy consolidated into one property. The complex contains its own feed mill and hatchery, its own trucking line and slaughterhouse that covers several acres of land and processes about one million dead chickens a week. The complex is like an economic dark star that has drawn into itself all the independent businesses that used to define a small town like Waldron, kinds of businesses that were once the economic pillars of rural America. Of course, tourists to Waldron would never see the Tyson plant, and not just because it sits on the north fringe of town away from Main Street. Visitors are stopped at its front gate and forbidden from exploring its grounds. So a tourist would have to be content to stroll along the sidewalks downtown, observing the fake Main Street, the deceptive array of little businesses to make it seem like a community. This illusory appearance cloaks Tyson's existence all the way from its roots in rural America, the grocery store shelves and restaurant menus where its products finally reach American consumers. The average shopper is usually fooled when he or she peruses the meat aisle, seeing what appears to be an abundance of choices and products. Tyson brand name wouldn't necessarily stand out with its logo gracing just a handful of products. But the rotisserie chicken slowly turning in its oven, the Bonisi brand pepperoni, the Lady Astor brand chicken cordon bleu, the frozen chicken pot pie, and the right brand bacon all come from the same company, Tyson. And then there is all the unlabeled meat that Tyson floods into the U.S. food system every day. The meat served in cafeterias, nursing homes, fast food restaurants, and suburban eateries where more and more Americans eat their meals. There's a very good chance any of the meat purchased in these places was made by Tyson. Even if Tyson did not produce a given piece of meat, the consumer is really only picking between different versions of the same commodified beef, chicken, and pork It is produced throughout a system that Tyson pioneered. Tyson's few competitors have resorted to imitating the company's business model just to survive. This book aims to explore the vast hidden territory between the remote farms and towns like Waldron, where Tyson raises millions of animals, and the final point of contact where consumers buy the company's meat. Unseen between these two poles is a hidden power structure that has quietly reshaped U.S. rural economies, 
while gaining unprecedented control over the nation's meat supply. Just a handful of companies produce nearly all the meat consumed in the United States, and Tyson is the king among them. The company sits atop a powerful oligarchy of corporations that determines how animals are raised, how much farmers get paid, and how meat is processed, all while reaping massive profits and remaining almost entirely opaque to the consumer. Because Tyson and its imitators are based in the geographic and economic fringes of America in forgotten places like Waldron, the company has managed to escape the scrutiny it deserves. While Tyson's operations are remote, the company's business practices affect virtually everyone. About 95% of Americans eat chicken, which means they almost certainly eat chicken produced by Tyson. And then it goes on from there. The book is The Meat Rack, The Secret Takeover of America's Food Industry by Christopher Leonard. Really pleased to have on the line with us Congresswoman Gwen Moore. She represents the 4th District of Wisconsin. She's an active member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the LGBT Equality Caucus. GwenMoore.House.gov is her website. You can tweet her at Rep. Gwen Moore. She's also a 13-year veteran of the Financial Services Committee. Congresswoman, welcome back to the program. It's been quite a while since you've been with us. It sure has been, Tom. So glad to be back. We have to make sure we don't let this big lapse occur again. I agree. I agree. Too much to talk about. Yeah, indeed. And if you'd ever like to come on for a full hour and take calls from our listeners, I'd love to have you host that. Um, Done. Done. Tell me, thank you. Tell me about this week, I I believe today, or maybe it's tomorrow, is the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the great, I call it the great Bush crash, but, uh, you know, they they call it the financial (laughs) crash. crisis. It's just like, you know, back in the 30s, they always referred to the Great Depression as the Republican Great Depression. And it wasn't until after World War II that the Republicans succeeded in getting the media to take that word out. <laughs> you know, and now it's the Great Depression. Anyhow, uh, this is the 10th anniversary and you've been on the Financial Services Committee for 13 years. What did we do wrong and what have we learned from that? And have we applied any of what we've learned to law and policy? Well, you know, what we quote-unquote did wrong uh, is to try to accommodate uh, our Republican friends, more moderates, and we, we just didn't go far enough with financial reform and Dodd-Frank. We tried to compromise. So I'll give you a really good example. The whole too-big-to-fail mm-hmm. notion. The original proposal is that we wanted these banks to ante up, up front, to build a fund so that we would never again have a $700 billion bailout of the banks. And uh, they pushed back on that, uh, and so we didn't have that fund. Uh, Another thing that we did wrong, other than the fact that nobody went to jail, uh, that's a a whole hour-long show. But I think think another thing that, that we did wrong is we didn't help underwater homeowners. Mm. I mean, we have trillions of dollars that ordinary homeowners lost due to this bailout. And while we bail the banks out and they are extremely profitable, I mean, profitable into the billions of dollars, there are still people who are underwater in their homes, people who didn't necessarily contribute to the crash, who can't even afford to fix their windows or fix their roofs because middle-class people's wealth is held in their houses way back into the 30s, as you indicated before, Tom. I mean, you know, if you're middle-class, your wealth is in your house versus stocks and bonds. And so the Tea Party 
came along, and they basically stopped us from helping ordinary homeowners who were underwater due to this crash. And they lost wealth in their homes. We see home ownership rates declining. The housing market has not, quote unquote, come back. And we don't know what a strong economy looks like uh, without a strong housing market. So those are a couple of things that I think we didn't do right at the time. Have we learned our lesson? Uh, (laughs) Well, I tell you, what contributed to the crash is that we had too much debt. Uh, We didn't have a good regulatory regime, including protecting consumers. We had huge income inequality, income inequality that parroted uh, what we saw in 1929, uh, 1930 Depression-era income inequality. Uh, And we saw that there just was not enough capital requirements in our financial institutions. Since we passed Dodd-Frank, what have we done? We're back to huge debts. I mean, just last night, the Ways and Means Committee gave rich people yet another unrequested, by the way, tax break, Hmm. uh, increasing our debt even more. There has been a steady drumbeat to reduce the regulatory regime that we put in place through Dodd-Frank, including the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which returned about $12 billion to consumers who had been victimized. Of course, income inequality is as great as it's ever been, Tom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another thing, the fiduciary standard, the best interest standard, which says that a broker has to operate in the best interest of their client before they help them with the investment advice, the fiduciary rule is like dead. And so, you know, we're just stuck on stupid waiting on dumb to come. (laughs) Well said. Back in the 30s when, uh, you know, when FDR came into office, when he was uh, sworn in in March of 1933, that week, the last of the banks in America failed. And the, you know, so it was just total wreckage of the banking system. And basically, you know, what Hoover and, 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 and Franklin Roosevelt for the first few months had done was just let the banks fail. But Roosevelt stepped in and he put into, into, into place uh, a government program. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have the name of it right off the top of my head. It's been a number of years since I wrote about this. Um, but basically, we were buying mortgages from the banks uh, people's more because the the standard mortgage back then was a five-year balloon and it was basically you know the speculative bubble in the 1920s and so we bought these five-year balloons and we turned them into 30-year fixed rate mortgages and allowed hundreds of thousands if not millions of American homeowners to stay in their homes as a result of that so we bailed out the homeowners in the 30s rather than the banks and we let the banks fail and I think history shows that America was better for it obviously we did the exact opposite in 2008 2009 we bailed out the bank and we let the homeowners fail, and the homeowners are still suffering. The housing prices are not even back up to where they were in 2007. How do we, how do we institutionalize this learning, uh, Congresswoman Moore? Well, we should uh, elect Democrats. There you go. Okay. <laughs> you got it. Um, but, but I do think that it really requires a strong education program. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that financial services... 
um, is a difficult subject, and uh, people's eyes glaze over when you start talking numbers, and particularly when you get into the trillions of dollars. And I mean, Republicans make it sound real good. Oh, we're all we have to do is just name it the the Tax Cut and Middle Class Families Act. Right. And somehow people believe that. And so, you know, last night, for example, um, you know, they uh, eliminated, they eliminated the top uh, category for taxes. And so that, you know, people think that maybe that's going to help me. No, it doesn't mm. help you if you're making $40,000 a year. Uh, and I, I think that it's, it's really, really important for us to break down financial conversations at at a kitchen table level, uh, and 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 share this information with people. To what extent do your colleagues in the Democratic Caucus, the the, the other Democrats in the House of Representatives, I know that the the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which you're a member of, is all over this. But how widely held is this belief that we've got to um, uh, reduce the power of the banks and these big corporations, these big financial institutions, and, and, and strengthen, you know, essentially the power of government as a protective agency? Uh, is there a debate in the Democratic caucus about this? Right. Well, you know, here's the thing. Um, Tom, you know, often arguments become conflated. Mm -hmm. No one disagrees that debt is injurious to our economy. So, uh, b but it's how you define spending. So Republicans will say, well, gee, we're in debt, so we can't spend on you. Right. We, we can't spend on human beings. Uh, we can't spend on education. You know, we need to cut Social Security. We need to cut Medicare. And you know, Republicans don't define giving breaks to corporations as spending, and it is spending. Mm -hmm. It is spending. When you spend through the tax code, you're still spending. They define that as an investment. You know, so it's wordplay. And I think that it, it, it's incumbent upon us to educate people that, yes, when we say that, that, that $1.5 trillion worth of tax cuts, is not an investment. It's stuff that's going to go to a shareholder. <laughs> yep. It's stuff that's going to go for, you know, share buybacks. People have got to understand that that doesn't translate into a chicken in every pot. No, it, it translates into uh, big bonuses for, for CEOs, and that's about it. Right. And outright let Republicans lie to you. Oh, you're going to get a, a wage increase, which mm. people deserve. One percent of these tax cuts have gone to people in increased wages. And what is much more common, <laughs> Tom, is to see lost jobs and share buybacks. Yeah, it's really a, a boondoggle. Congresswoman Gwen Moore, you can tweet her at Rep Gwen Moore, G-W-E-N-M-O-O-R-E, uh, her website, gwenmoore.house.gov. Congresswoman, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Great and, talking. And we're going to do this. I Bye -bye. agree. I, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. If you want the absolute best shirts around, you have to go to CT Shirts. I want you to try them because once you do, you'll never go back to some random shirt off the shelf of a department store. Plus, CT Shirts come in custom sizes, so you're not messing with ill-fitted sleeve lengths or neck sizes. 
It's time to step up your game and look your best. So I got you a special CT Shirts deal. Three CT Shirts for $99. CT Shirts use the softest, most exquisite fabrics ever. Worker casual, tie or no tie, tucked or untucked. When you're wearing a CT shirt, you will look your best. So here's the deal. One CT shirt normally costs 100 bucks, but right now you'll get three CT shirts for just $99. That's 60% off. And CT shirts come with free delivery, a six-month quality guarantee, and free returns. If you hurry, 99 bucks gets you three amazing CT shirts. So go to www.ctshirts.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's www.ctshirts.com slash Tom. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Alan Ratner's new book. And on the line with us is uh, Luke Vargas for Talk Media News, the chief foreign correspondent. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Uh, Luke, welcome back. Terrific. Thanks okay. for having me on. I, I, let me uh, walk you through the topics I've got. Let's go for yeah, it. Yeah, let's start with Canada. It's an interesting one. So, of course, Canada, our northern neighbor, is going to be legalizing marijuana nationwide on October 17th. And Justin Trudeau, the Canadian leader, has said, look, he doesn't expect the United States to change very many customs or border regulations to, you know, uh, adapt to a changing, you know, legalized situation north of the border. But far from that, we are actually hearing that the United States is sort of digging in its heels and is promising to crack down further on various drug-related immigration crimes at the border. So there's an existing law, basically, uh, that Customs and Border Patrol agents at the U.S.-Canada border can bar someone for, for life from entering the United States if they are a drug user. Any admission of past drug use is grounds for a lifetime ban from the U.S. is uh, part of the actual... Whoa, would that include there. medical marijuana? It does, and, and uh, well, we don't know. There's, so that's sort of a gray area, and it's up for, sort of, uh, up for the people at the border to make those determinations. Uh, and this is only a, with non-U.S. citizens, right? Exactly. So this Politico has a story interviewing senior uh, Customs and Border Patrol officials saying that the U.S. does not uh, plan to change any border or admissions policies as this legalization goes into effect. But in fact, what they're sort of doing is expanding it because um, according to U.S. law, anyone who is involved in finance, venture capital financing, other sorts of backing financially for marijuana producers in Canada, which is going to be a very, very lucrative industry there, and you've already seen major venture capitalists get into that field, sure. those people are classified now by U.S. laws as drug traffickers uh, because they are trying to boost the production and distribution. So we've actually had instances this year of major, you know, multi-million millionaire, uh, you know, investors in the legal pot industry in Canada right. getting those lifetime bans from entering the United States. So don't expect uh, necessarily the fact that, you know, marijuana is going to be legal north of the border to, uh, uh, you know, reduce your risk of having a problem at the, at the U.S. border. Far from it. It seems like there are actually a little bit more uh, pitfalls that could befall these people. Is this coming out of Jeff Sessions? And do you think Congress will clean this up? It depends how much of an impact it actually has on cross-border movement. Yeah. I'd say it's probably because so much rests on the discretion of border agents that it wouldn't be that hard to have a directive saying, look, I mean, if you smell pot in a car, tell them they can't come in today, but don't hit everybody with a lifetime ban. Right. And I think there's going to have to be some sort of guidance coming from maybe Treasury, 
because, frankly, the medical marijuana industry in Canada is going to attract so many sort of individual investors, people who are not, you know, pouring tens of millions of dollars in, but just sure. a few hundred or thousand dollars of personal investments. You're not going to be able to classify all those people as, uh, you know, drug traffickers and ban them from life for the United States. So I would right. guess a little clarity comes here, but they're just not ceding any ground in advance. Yeah, got it. Donald Trump is not not only asking you and me to pay for his wall, in fact, talking about shutting the government down to force us to, but now he's also offering to pay Mexico to take deported uh, uh, Central American migrants. How much more money does he want to use for this and how is it being received by Mexico? Well, it depends which Mexican government you're looking at, the, out, the current outgoing ones or the lame duck uh, president or Enrique Peña Nieto or uh, Manuel Obrador, who's coming in in December. So here's the plan. It's $20 million. It's not new money that they'd be asking taxpayers for. It's $20 million appropriated to the Merida initiative. This is sort of a U.S.-Mexico joint security uh, financing fund, and they would put it towards paying the bus and train fare and plane fare for people from the Northern Triangle countries, these Central American country, you know, countries which are having huge problems with gang violence and drug trafficking. Uh, the U.N. actually recognizes many of these people as, you know, asylum seekers. As refugees. Fleeing, yeah. Right. Uh, or people who are eligible to at least apply to be refugees. And uh, under Jeff Sessions, the DOJ has revoked that classification, saying, look, you know, we don't consider these people to be, you know, people who could be up for asylum protections. This is a step further. The U.S. Uh, wanting to use $20 million to give it to the Mexican government to deport 17,000 people from Central America, not who are already in the U.S., but who are in Mexico. Just basically say, get these people even further away from the United States. And uh, obviously, rights groups here are justifiably concerned. I mean, we have uh, international law principles of non-refoulement. Essentially, it is illegal. It's an international crime to send people back to areas where there's a high likelihood of their injury or death, depending on various political affiliations and the like. Uh, This, you know, according to Amnesty, I talked to earlier, saying, look, this is the U.S. outsourcing its international obligations and trying to get Mexico to do that work for it. We'll see. The current government says we're going to look at this proposal. The incoming government says not a chance. So even if maybe this deal gets put into place for a few months, I think once the new president's in in December, he's likely to have another stance on this. And I wouldn't I don't see this really being viable, but it shows what the U.S. wants to be able to do, which is just to shift these asylum figures as far away from America's border as possible. Remarkable. In five seconds, Luke, North and South Korea meeting in Pyongyang. Should we be hopeful? Let's just say yes, and we'll pick it up on Tuesday with more details. <laughs> okay, sounds like a plan. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Thanks, Luke. Thank you. Good talking with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And welcome back to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Humanity. Warming the World to Extinction, a book about extinction. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in our atmosphere, trapping heat and moisture, than ever before in the 165,000-year history of the human race. We are on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse, they're all taking place right now. And it's going to get worse. But now other voices have entered the fray. 
those of geologists who study the longer-term implications and histories of a planet undergoing rapid global warming. Specifically, they are focused on extinctions. The climate scientists, geologists, and those from related scientific disciplines need to continue talking to each other because at some point we may be able to see the critical moment in which the current climate crosses from the realm of a global destabilizer to a global extinction event. We must wake up. It's hard to imagine life without Earth. We take the vast variety of life on this planet and even our own existence for granted. But numerous times in our planet's history, life as we know it has come close to disappearing entirely. We call these events mass extinctions. And we even teach schoolchildren about those times of great death on our planet. For example, we know that long ago on a much more unstable planet, the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid striking the Earth. This leads many people to believe that as long as we don't see an asteroid hurtling toward the planet, all is well. But this is not rational thinking for several reasons. The asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs and started a major mass extinction is the only event having to do with outer space that we can trace with any certainty. And new science indicates that the asteroid impact itself wasn't what killed the dinosaurs. It was the global warming that followed it. New science has discovered a common theme in all of the extinctions in the past, and it's woven right into the global fabric of today as yet another mass extinction threatens our planet. That global consistent thread is global warming. We have had six extinctions in the billion-year history of life on our planet. Each sharp spike indicates one of these mass extinctions. Occurring about 450 million years ago, the Ordovician slash Silurian mass extinction devastated marine life, which at the time dominated the planet. In a series of two extinctions, 60 and 70% of all life on the planet was taken, respectively. Then, fewer than 100 million years later, the planet was rocked again. The Denovian period was capped off by a 20-million-year death march. It killed off 70% of life on Earth. This included many coral reefs, which didn't return for another 100 million years. We know of the KT extinction, the Cretaceous-Tertiary extinction, which occurred 65 million years ago, ending the reign of the dinosaurs. There was also an extinction event 200 million years ago, known as the Triassic-Jurassic mass extinction. But none of these extinctions explains the huge spike shown in the center of the previous chart. That one happened 250 million years ago and was the worst mass extinction of species event in the history of our planet. It was the extinction of all extinctions, referred to as the Great Dying. The Permian mass extinction took out at least 95% of all life on the planet in fewer than 100,000 years, an instant in geological time. Professor Paul Wignall of the University of Leeds and an expert on mass extinctions told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The Permian mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait. Thus, global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the Permian mass extinction. That point is well illustrated. You can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures, with the largest spike representing the Permian mass extinction. Wignall told me, 
There have been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past. It's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today. He added, I think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming, with obvious implications for the present day. The sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the great Permian mass extinction. But the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts. That's because it's the one happening today, right now, all around us. And then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction, and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction. Some other uh, news of the day that I wanted to touch on. Uh, students at Harding University are holding a candlelight vigil for Botham Jean, the young African-American who was murdered by Dallas police officer Amber Geiger. Well, killed. She's been charged with manslaughter. She walked into what she thought was her apartment. She, a white woman, and here was a black man, and she pulled out her gun and killed him. So what are the Dallas police doing about this? Well, uh, according to Botham Jean's lawyer, quote, uh, they went in to his apartment. They got a search warrant to search his apartment. And they found three-tenths of an ounce, or almost four-tenths, 0.37 ounces of marijuana in his apartment. <gasps> oh, my God. So this is, this is what the lawyer says. This is Lee Merritt, the attorney for Jean's family. They went in with the intent to look for some sort of criminal justification for shooting the victim. It's a pattern we've seen before. We have a cop who clearly did something wrong, and instead of investigating the homicide, instead of going into her apartment and seeing what they can find, instead of collecting evidence relevant for the homicide investigation, they went out specifically looking for ways to tarnish the image of this young man. It's the Michael Brown story all over again. Meanwhile, Chad McDonald posted this over on uh, Facebook, I believe it was. Uh, Trump left 3,000 Americans with brown skin to die, and now he's denying they ever existed. And he did in a tweet. No, there was not 3,000 Puerto Ricans who died. That, says Chad McDonald, is ethnic cleansing. And I have to absolutely agree with that. And finally, I just wanted to put this on your radar. In New York State, apparently in 2016, there was a giant purge of voters. And apparently, they, people have not been unpurged. All kinds of people showed up to vote in the Democratic primary, and they were not on the list. Rebecca Triaster says, this was 8.30, the poll watcher who helped me. We said the second person she spoke to, another woman who said she was active, regular voter, not in the books. She was not in the books. Linda Polygreen, editor-in-chief of Huffington Post. Former director at the New York Times, happened to me too. Her information was scrubbed from the Democratic Party's roles. Jess McIntosh, she lives in New York. She does the Signal Boost show on Sirius XM from uh, noon to one Eastern time. Uh, she went to vote Thursday morning. I guess it was yesterday, Thursday morning. And uh, she writes, uh, I had to assert my rights for the first time at a polling place today. Reminder, if you're in the right place and not on the roll, sign an affidavit and cast a provisional ballot. Yeah, do that by all means, but don't expect it to be counted. Provisional ballots, the vast majority of provisional ballots are never counted. They're placebo ballots. This was written into the Help America Vote Act. The Help America Vote Act was basically a vehicle to transfer five or six billion dollars from federal tax dollars into the hands of the for-profit uh, voting machine companies, ESNS, Diebold, and others, uh, to set up this nationwide system of electronic voting machines that have served us so very well with Redshift and everything else, right? 
and when Help America Vote Act was passed, they created this thing called placebo, excuse me, called provisional ballots so that nobody would ever think that they'd been turned away. And most people who are given a, pl a provisional ballot don't realize that it will never be counted. Kristen Richardson says, three of us were in line, uh, on, not on the voting rolls, in my polling place in Clinton Hill. This is the first affidavit ballot I've had ever had to cast. Virgil Texas, a podcast author, a, a host and author, says uh, he was purged, uh, Virgil. Uh, Naomi Konst, I, I retweeted her thing. She said, went into vote, skipping, but just found out my name was not listed on the roll at my polling place. Despite having the recently sent documentation from the Board of Elections with me, I had to fill out a provisional. Kia Cruz, a fiction author, is the exact same thing. I wasn't able to vote today because my party had been mysteriously changed without my permission. I filled out an affidavit and hope my vote eventually counts, but this is just a reminder that our voting systems are messed up. This is in New York State. And apparently, you know, this freelance uh, writer, Suzanne Zappello, seems like the 2016 purge of Democrat voters in New York during the primary was never fixed. And it's weird that all the people I know having to fill an affidavit ballot were Bernie voters in 2016 and Cynthia voters today. And it goes on like that. So I don't know that it's specifically targeted Bernie or Cynthia or anything like that. But there, you know, something is rotten in Denmark here. And hopefully the, the New York state is going to start working and getting to the bottom of all this. Scott in Mission, Kansas. Hey, Scott, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I just wanted to talk about the uh, blue wave mm -hmm. and, like, the possibility of it coming. So I'm assuming you saw that uh, stat that showed that more than half of millennials support Democrats, but then less than half of them actually plan to vote. Yeah, and less than a quarter of them, or in the neighborhood of a quarter of them, voted last time around. Yeah, and to me, it's... I wouldn't necessarily say it's all on them because in many ways the Democrats have to get them to come out to vote by campaigning on issues that matter to them mm. and appealing to them. David Sirota just wrote a brilliant piece suggesting that, yeah, we're going to sweep the Republicans out of here, but it's also time to sweep the corporate Democrats out of here. You know, I saw the Chris Hayes special with Michael Moore in Flint, Michigan on Chris Hayes' show. And he had a bunch of people who didn't vote. You know, 80,000 people in Michigan voted for everything all the way down to drain commissioner, but did not vote for president. And he had a bunch of them on the show. And they were like, yeah, I didn't vote because nobody inspired me. I didn't believe that anybody on that ballot really cared about my interests. And so why vote for them? And if the Democratic Party doesn't start putting up genuinely progressive candidates, they're going to keep losing elections. And if they do start yeah. putting up genuinely progressive candidates, they're going to start winning elections in my humble opinion. Yeah. There are going to be people who are going to say, well, Cuomo, you know, winning uh, over Cynthia Nixon in New York, quack, quack, quack. I don't think that had to do with policy. I think that had to do with Cuomo being a two-term incumbent, really, really high name recognition. You know, the potholes are getting fixed. The trains are running on time. It doesn't seem to be a disaster in New York yeah. State. And people just don't pay attention. And here in a KSO2, KSO3, Sharice uh, Davids won a over Brent Welder, who is the more progressive candidate. And so there's going to be a lot of people saying that they want these more moderate Democrats like Sharice. But in KSO4, James Thompson, the, more, the most progressive candidate in that race, won. A KSO, I'm assuming you mean Kansas State Senate District? Yeah. Or something like for, that? Uh, House of Representatives. Oh, for yeah. the U.S. House of Representatives. So these are the yeah. congressional districts in Kansas that you're talking about. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it works in one place. It doesn't work in another place. And I'm, I'm guessing that all things being equal, 
And that's the thing. All things are not equal. Cuomo had this enormous name recognition and the entire state machine behind him and the New York Times endorsement, which is all huge. I mean, almost impossible to defeat. But if all things are equal, the progressive candidate, in my opinion, will not only always beat the corporate Democratic candidate, but will easily beat any Republican. Yeah. And and that's... Therese David attended Johnson County Community College, which is where I currently attend college. Uh So... And she won at Johnson County, and Brent Welder was beating her in Wyandotte County, which was... Yeah, so. it's kind of inside Kansas baseball, but I get your point. Scott, thanks a lot for the call, and uh, thanks for watching. Thanks for giving us a shout. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hi, Tom. Well, I would disagree with the characterization that, or maybe it's Brett Kavanaugh's characterization, that under the Glucksburg decision, abortion was for the longest time in this country illegal. That's not true. Okay. Um, what is true? Okay. Well, let me give you the <laughs> let me give you the facts. Harry Blackman, who wrote the Rove decision, much of that decision was essentially a dissertation on the history of abortion. Mm-hmm. He did. That's why it took him so long to write the decision. It took him four months to write the decision. Wow. And he did an extensive research on the history of abortion, and part of what he found was that abortion had been legal all over the world up until just after the Civil War here in this country. Mm-hmm. And one thing you have to understand is when you say legal in this country, it's always been legal in at least some states in this country. Mm-hmm. It's never been illegal in the United States. So there's not been a federal law against abortion, just state no, laws. No, in fact, yeah. the only federal law that we have now is the right to choose. There's never been a federal law. And the reason it was made illegal after the Civil War is because that was a time when they, they knew from the Civil War, that, or they thought, that this would be for antiseptic and, and sterile techniques. And so so many people died from invasive surgeries. They thought the same would happen with abortions. Now, one thing you have to point out is that before that, up in, in this country, is that people, they did have abortions. Now, what would happen is that it had to do with difficult childbirth. So, ironically, most abortions that took place were late-term abortions, when women got into deep trouble hmm. with their pregnancies. Up until the turn of the 20th century, it was safer to have an abortion than it was to have a baby. Right. Child and it still is in many countries. So when sterile techniques and antiseptic and sterile techniques were discovered in the 1870s and 1880s, by the turn of the 20th century, pain-free surgeries were not uncommon at all. So abortion was not a problem. And so that's when the majority of states legalized abortion. So to say that abortion was illegal in this country was only some states after the Civil War. And in 1973 is when we finally had a federal decision about about abortion. And, and let's remember that it, has, it had nothing to do with the right to life or not. This had to do with the right to privacy. Right. In, in, the, right in the Roe decision, yeah. Had been established in the right to privacy had been established in the Griswold decision in 1965. Right. So this is Brett Kavanaugh. I don't trust this guy. He's a slime. I'm sorry, but he, yeah. he can twist it that way if he wants, but that's not true. That's not the truth. Uh, the, the Harry Blackman did extensive research, and abortion was legal all over the world, and in this country, too, up until 
just after the Civil War. Well, here's his quote. This is what Brett Kavanaugh said. Even a first-year law student could tell you that the Glucksburg approach to unenumerated rights is not consistent with the approach of the abortion cases such as Roe v. Wade in 73 and the 1992 decision affirming Roe, known as Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Right, that was 1992. Well, right. well listen, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in Webster in 89 and in Casey in 1992 that the right to choose has been a, an expectation of women for a generation. Now it's been two generations. Yeah. And besides that, it's convenient for him to use the Glucksburg decision in 97 to talk about previous decisions that he doesn't agree with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You also wonder to what extent the criminalization of abortion after the Civil War might have had to do with, you know, race hysteria. You know, the Pat Buchanan argument against abortion is that abortions are generally more easily accessible to uh, women of higher economic station, which is typically white women. And therefore, it's reducing the white population over time. That was Pat Buchanan's argument. Well, you know, uh, Tom, it's, my mother is a professor of nursing, and, and she's been teaching public health for a long time. And she's been saying this, I'm quoting this since the 1970s, ever since. The majority, over 50% of the women who have abortions are middle class white women who already who are married and already have two or more children. That's right. That's right. And one in four American women will have had an abortion in their lifetimes. This is not uncommon, etc. Paul, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. It's always good to hear from you. It's the Tom Hartman Program. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our podcasts are supported by advertising, and one of our advertisers is Harry's. By now, you probably know that I love shaving with Harry's. Nate uh, loves shaving with Harry's. In fact, everybody I know who's tried Harry's is like, whoa, this is incredible. You get an amazingly close shave with Harry's, a smooth, comfortable glide with their perfectly weighted razor. It's incredible. If you add Harry's fantastic-smelling shave gel, you have the perfect recipe for the best shave you'll ever have. Harry's does all this and at a great price, too. They own their own world-class blade factory in Germany where they grind steel into sharp, durable blades that are made to last, and they pass the savings along to you. Don't confuse Harry's with those other pricey online brands that force you to subscribe. With Harry's, you can resupply whenever and however you want. Auto refills or one-off a la carte, your choice. And at just 2 bucks a cartridge, that's less than half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of my podcast. New customers get $5 off a shave set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get the starter set, the five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave, gel, travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Join the millions of guys who've already switched, including me, and go to harrys.com today. Use the code TOM at checkout to claim your offer. Today marks the 50th day since Trump and his administration, his brutal administration, were supposed to reunite all of these children who had been stolen from their parents. There are still over 400 of them not reunited, and there are apparently over 12,000 children being held in short or long term, we're not really sure, detention by the federal government right now. The documentary that's on Netflix, by the way, that I mentioned earlier, it's called Reversing Row. Somebody tweeted to me saying, you know, I can't find it on Netflix. If you plug in, just uh, type in Reversing Row. It is absolutely astonishing. I can't speak highly enough about it. It's just incredible. Morris in Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, Professor, I know you're not a gambler, 
but the greatest upset in the history of all sports took place at the U.S. Open in the finals between Serena Williams and a young lady named Osaka. The odds at Vegas for Osaka was 1 to 50. That means if Whoa. you put down a dollar, they would give you 50. Okay? Right. I saw this match. I saw this match. What happened was this. Serena ran into, now I'm quoting Chris Everett. She used to play tennis, too. She was a champion. Serena ran into a younger version of herself. Now, Professor, I don't know if you play tennis, but this kid was serving religiously at 110 miles per hour. Whoa. And she beat it. Every ad point she came to, she won. Serena had never seen nothing like this in her life. Had she responded and not reacted to the chair umpire, that would be the narrative today. I watch a lot of sports. I watch a lot of stuff. No one is talking about that. I don't care if you're talking about boxing. You know, boxing used to be fixed, you know, that horse racing. There's never, ever been something like this that's come to pass, yet it's just going without discussion. Hmm. And, Professor, I want to ask you this now. If my father was born in Haiti and my mother was born in Japan and I'm taking my mother's name, what would my ethnicity be? What, what would you call me? Like, let's say if I'm a black person in America, you would call me either a black American or African American. But what would you call a young lady like Miss Osaka? I'm not in the business of parsing people's ethnicities, uh, Morris. You know, on the one hand, when you start saying, well, we shouldn't have all these labels, then, you know, you get people going, particularly Native Americans, African Americans, going, wait a minute, you want to strip my ancestry from me? And on the other hand, when you start trying to parse, okay, who is what? How much, how much blood do you have to have to be this or that? Then it starts getting really, really tricky. I don't want to wade into that minefield, frankly. That's why they call you Professor Harden. I'm not sure if that's smart or cowardly, Morris, but... Uh, no, no, know. that's smart. No, no, what that is is intelligent. Okay. Thank you, sir. I'll Th- see you later on. Thanks a lot. Good talking with you. I appreciate it. Lee in San Bernardino, California. Hey, Lee, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? My issue right here, man, is about a city that I live in that they done took everything away, all the politicians' stuff in their pockets. We don't even got a rec center, and they wonder why these kids out here gangbanging. Mm-hmm. Because they've taken everything away, brother. They, they're, they're giving us nothing to look forward to. Yep. When I was younger, we had Pop Warner football. You could go get a free lunch from the rec center. You could do anything. Now, there's nothing. Really? So, yeah, yeah. This is in San Bernardino, California, the city I grew up in. It's, it's like, it's, it's terrible right now, Tom. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. It's, uh, I, you know, this is this is neoliberal economics, Lee, and neoliberal politics. The the idea that we've got to cut back, we've got to do you know more with less, or we've got to do less with less, actually, and and that the and it all comes out of this libertarian ideology that the that the job of government is not to provide an infrastructure for the quali- for quality of life. It's only to provide infrastructure for basically threatening people, police and military. And, yes, and yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's about it. And and it, it is such a shame. Lee, thanks for, for pointing it out and bringing up the issue. I you know, this is something we all need to be working on. Armando in Armando. Houston, Texas. Armando, what's up? Yes. Uh, I was just noticing that people were saying that uh, about the Trump economy, how it was uh, so improved and everything. But I've also noticed that even in, on MSNBC, I haven't heard anything about uh, the other factors like since the Great Recession, eight out of every ten jobs were low-income, uh, dead-end temporary jobs, or yep. uh, how the the real unemployment rate, yep. the uh, 15, 16 percent. 
And we still, you know, since the Reagan administration, we haven't been counting people who have dropped out of the job market. And it doesn't mean that they want to be unemployed. It just means that there's no jobs. I mean, we don't count people in rural West Virginia, for example. Yeah, but are are these factors, have they changed any? Because, I mean, it's almost like we're uh, uh, surrendering to the Trump administration by saying that, you know, everything's great. When, I mean, I've met people that say, you know, I still haven't found a job and the economy's not really great for me. But, yeah. I mean, no, that's, that's why the norm. are we doing this? There is a great op-ed in today's New York Times calling for a new set of metrics. And Bernie Sanders used to make this argument on this show all the time. The, the Department of Labor actually comes up with an unemployment rate. I think it's called Unemployment E. And it actually includes so-called discouraged workers. So whether it's in the inner city or whether it's in rural West Virginia or Wyoming, people who can't find a job because there literally are no jobs, right now we don't count them as part of the unemployment rate. So structural unemployment that is, is absolutely vanished. It's vanished from our numbers. And so we kind of pretend and, it doesn't exist. And what about the people that are being hired? Are they good jobs or are they just the suck, suck as uh, No, you're absolutely or? right. The vast majority of jobs being created are temporary jobs, number one, that have no benefits and no job security and that pay at or near minimum wage. Uh, and number two, the functional equivalent of temporary jobs in real companies. So, uh, well, you know, why aren't Democrats using this as a, as a talking point? Because well, I mean, they have been. I like- mean, this is something Mark Pocan has talked about this on this show. Ro Khan has talked about this on this show. Bernie Sanders has talked about it for decades. It's just yeah, you I mean, will not. The, the other. Oh, they, they talk about it all the time. You just will not hear it being talked about on the corporate media because the corporate media does not want to be the little boy who says the emperor has no clothes. That, that's the bottom line, in my opinion. Fred in Los Angeles. Hey, Fred, what's up? Hi. Well, I want to talk a little bit about vocabulary. Okay. That seems to be one of the topics of the day. First of all, it's not Republicans, Republicans. Yeah, or Republicans. Can't have that, can't have this, can't have anything else. Second of all, to substitute for the F word, I think we should use the word frack, like they did on Battlestar Galactica, because fracking is certainly dirtier. Yeah, okay. All right. That's um, the third one would be when they say tax uh, the Democrats tax and spend, the Democrats should come back and say, yeah, tax the rich and spend on the middle class. And Republicans are addicted to coke. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're all cokeheads. Well done, Fred. And I would I would add borrow and spend because, you know, you, you can call the Democrats tax and spend. The Republicans are borrow and spend. Catherine in Walnut, Kansas. Hey, Catherine, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Um, first time caller. Love your show. Thank you. Just watch it as often as I can. Um, the political commercials that are going on um, down here in southeast Kansas, there's Claire McCaskill. They're so positive. And, you know, there's no mudslinging or anything, and it's just so refreshing to watch those compared to the Koch brother, I'm sure, backed ones that just, and they are, I'm sure, going for the Republican politician, but it's just hateful, mean, just horrible. Yeah. And, um, you know, I noticed that the other day that when I was watching one of hers, I thought to myself, my God, you know, this how you can go, okay, I'm going to go for the hateful mean, then to, you know, do that. But anyways, Catherine, thank you for the call. And we need to be paying attention to these things, even the small things like, you know, 
Brett Kavanaugh did what? It's so easy for it to all get lost in the in the sea of, of bile coming out of Washington, D.C. And, and the Trump administration. But we do have to stay focused. So thanks so much for participating with us in this program. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require you, you, me, all of us. We have to get out there, get active tag. You're it. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 